0: So this evening, I'm going to look into the work of Nagarjuna himself, with reference back to what we've been considering this morning. And I'd like to start by reading a couple of verses from, from um, the section called Awakening. I don't know how many of you have this book and want to follow. Um, I'll give page, would, would that be helpful if I gave page numbers? So it's page one, two, three, and this is the second and the third verse. And so first of all, the third verse. Nagarjuna says, "The Buddha despaired of teaching the Dharma, knowing it hard to intuit its depths." This refers to the the period after the awakening of the Buddha, when he spends six weeks in a kind of prolonged hesitation. One might have thought that once one had attained this degree of enlightenment, awakening, insight, whatever we call it, that this would have then prompted one to to act in some way. And yet the Buddha curiously finds himself vacillating. And the, the Pali texts say that, he th- the whole idea of teaching, he found wearisome. That he didn't think the people could possibly understand what he was getting at. Nagarjuna's reading of that is that the Buddha entered a kind of despair. That he realized how incredibly difficult it was to communicate, to articulate, to put into words exactly what it was that he just experienced. And this, I think, is a a conundrum that runs through the, the Buddhist tradition. Perhaps it's a conundrum, really, that runs through all religious and spiritual traditions, namely the dilemma between the core insights, visions, whatever, that are so often described as ineffable something beyond words. And yet at the same time, that other imperative to somehow respond to the suffering of the world, to not just leave that ineffability unspoken. And I think in some way to do that, there is a sense of a lack of completion, that something's still left to be done I think this is somewhat similar in a way to poetry. In other words, we have an intuition, we have a a vision of something, a very deep experience perhaps, and it's somehow not adequate just to keep it to oneself. One feels that there's an almost irresistible urge to, to say something, to write something, to paint something, It feels somehow that only in that act of articulation does what was a private moment calls forth to become public. And in the previous verse here, Nagarjuna, I think, spells out perhaps one of the reasons for the Buddha's hesitation when he says, misperceiving emptiness injures the unintelligent like mishandling a snake or miscasting a spell. The idea here is that what Nagarjuna is primarily concerned to communicate, this idea of emptiness, is something that actually is extremely problematic. It's actually not even more. It's more than problematic. It's downright dangerous, in the sense that it can be readily misunderstood. It's interesting that he compares it to a snake. Um, in India, of course, the snake, the naga, from which Nagarjuna actually, of course, gets his own name, Nagarjuna, is an animal that has a deep tonic earthy rootedness in the whole religiosity of the subcontinent. The the, the Naga cults were regarded archaeologically to be the earliest indications of Indian spirituality. And the figure of the snake appears again and again and again. You find it in Nagarjuna. You find it, of course, with Shiva. And a snake is both something which is very uh, fascinating... When you see a snake, you are often very drawn to to simply look at this extraordinary creature as it negotiates the terrain. And yet at the same time, it's also frightening. It's also scary. And if we want to somehow take hold of that snake, appropriate it for ourselves, we run a great risk if we were to pick it up in the wrong way, that it would actually come back and bite us. And emptiness shunyata, is seen to have a similar kind of risk attached. That if we get it wrong, if we we misconstrue this idea, if we don't quite get it right, then it's not that we've just failed then to understand something, but the implication is that getting it wrong can actually be somehow destructive, it can actually be counterproductive. And I guess the greatest danger that I assume Nagarjuna to have in mind is that we think of emptiness as somehow a kind of sacred state, something special, something apart from the world, existing in in its own right. Something that if we were to meditate long enough we might get a glimpse of. That emptiness might be thought of as somehow beyond the range and reach of contingency. Emptiness is perhaps thought of as the ground. I mean, there are often you read about these ideas that emptiness is like the, the ocean out of which phenomena arise and then disappear, and then fall back into emptiness, come out of emptiness and fall back. Now, that might be a, a moving poetic image, but I think it's quite at odds with what Nagarjuna is trying to get at. Nagarjuna is not a, sorry. Emptiness is not a thing, even a very oceanic, vast, subtle thing, from which things can pop into being and pop back again. That we have to somehow go beyond the whole tendency we have towards reification and i.e. making things out of things, carving things off from their context. And this seems to be built into the very, the very structure of language itself. As soon as we operate with nouns and verbs, which is inevitable, whatever language we speak. And again, Tibetan and Sanskrit and Pali and Chinese are not intrinsically different in that respect than our Western languages. But as soon as we're using substantives, Words like cup and hat and chair and pen and emptiness. We have, as it were, very conveniently and necessarily in terms of communication, in terms of making sense, we've singled that thing out. We've given it, as it were, a kind of boundary, a kind of border. Hat. We know exactly what that means. If I say hat, you think of some object with a shape of a certain kind. And you can recognize all specific instances of hats. It's very useful. But it also makes us think that there is something intrinsic about hats that gives them a certain hatness. There's a, I don't have my hat anymore. But it seems as though the hatness of the hat jumps out of the object in an odd way. And that capacity of language to differentiate, which we saw this morning as a function of perception, that capacity to differentiate, to separate one thing from another, allows us to function in this world. But it also sets a trap, as it were, in which we're liable to take language more literally than it should be taken. And we begin to think that for every word there is a corresponding And that thing somehow stands in opposition to all other things. And that thing somehow is what it is, by its own nature, by its own intrinsic properties. Now we're liable, of course, to think of emptiness in a similar way. Perhaps we can't even really avoid doing that. As soon as we say emptiness, I'm sure everybody's going, what the hell does that mean? And we think of it as a kind of thing. We think to have an experience of emptiness is a bit like having an experience of a hat. We heard about hats, and then one day someone gives us a hat, and we say, aha, that's what it is. I don't think emptiness, and Nagarjuna, I think, would certainly agree with this, is not that kind of thing. So there's something dangerous about this. If we reify emptiness, if we make it into a thing, if we kind of give it... A divine quality, or if we just look at the way it's translated, for example, as the void, the void, um, the amount of um, fantasies that this idea of the void has given rise to. And actually, it's just, I mean, the reason for that is because when it was first translated into French, it was le vide. And it seems as though the English then adopted the void as the easiest way to get around that. But actually, the word shunyata, if anything, is just emptiness. Some people have tried to translate it um, to give it a rather more attractive spin. Herbert Gunther once translated it as the open dimension of being, which sounds very nice. And in one of my books, I translated it as transparency, which also makes it sound somehow agreeable. But I suspect this term emptiness is used precisely because it is unappealing. That it is slightly provocative. That it's maybe meant to shock us in some way. Meant to somehow alert us to the fact that there's a danger lurking here somewhere. We need to be careful. Now what happened um, after the Buddha died uh, in about 500 BC... Is that his his followers memorized, uh, or they had memorized by that time, a vast number of talks, of discourses, of probably fragments, anecdotes, bits and pieces that this um, per, things this person had said, that must have left, left this extraordinary impact on a body of disciples and followers to actually conscientiously and deliberately seek to memorize the whole body of that information and having done so quite understandably there then came as it were one step removed the buddha is no longer around it's not a kind of living ongoing um, dispensation any longer but we now have a body of knowledge a body of information and the mind being what it is, wants to try to sort out and somehow digest and distill what in fact is going on here with all these amazingly diverse talks. And so they then set in motion a kind of scholarly endeavour to to classify, to categorise, to codify, to define all of the key terms that the Buddha was repeatedly using. And this gave rise to systems of of classification, taxonomy, which go loosely under the heading Abhidharma. And as some of you are probably familiar, the early schools of Buddhism were largely concerned with classification and definition and cross-referencing between different terms. They wanted to know what all these different bits and pieces of this doctrine meant. And in fact what I was doing this morning in looking at vinyana, nama, rupa and so on was actually taking some of those key Abhidharma terms and teasing them out in a way that I feel is actually quite a helpful account of getting a handle on the complexity of our experience. But we could have taken it another route and somehow set these terms apart given them narrow definitions, memorized those definitions, and thought of them, as the abhidharmists often did, as terms that referred to an irreducible dharma, or entity, or thing, that was in turn a kind of constitutive foundation of reality itself. So for example, the idea of say rupa, or of attention, or intention or consciousness these were considered to be irreducible terms that couldn't be broken down into further constituents there was something specific and peculiar about these things that resisted any further analysis so that there were so the classification process generated a somewhat naive philosophical endeavour to actually pin down what were the building blocks of experience itself. And most of the Abhidharma schools come up with about 100, 100 odd, 112 maybe different irreducible entities that are the core constituents of reality itself. Now Nagarjuna in many ways is rebelling against that. In other words, we can see how we have a process at work here. We start with the Buddha's own experience, his awakening, his teaching, his discourses, his responding to the occasions that were continuously presenting themselves to him. We then have a process whereby that's codified, classified, and then reduced to kind of key or core ideas. And then those ideas begin to become dogmas they begin to become idée uh, fixations, obsessions, um, irreducible points in reality. And in doing so, the, the, the dynamism, the fluidity, the spontaneity that you find in those early discourses is somehow lost. In, 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 in its place, there stands now a body of doctrine. And it seems, though again the history of this process is very, very fuzzy, it seems that Nagarjuna and others got to a point of such frustration with this taxonomic process that there was a kind of rebellion against it and and an attempt to return to the vitality that informed the Buddha's teachings. Now what's striking about Nagarjuna is that he is the first voice that we hear after the Buddha. The Buddha dies in about 500 BC, 543 I think. Nagarjuna seems to have lived within the first or second century of the common era, in other words after Christ. And in that six or seven hundred year gap, you do not have any figure, any person, any, any individual who articulates the Dharma in their own voice. You have all of these people who classify this stuff and who remember the discourses and repeat them. But this is in a sense always in service to the founder of the tradition. With Nagarjuna, you suddenly hear a very distinctive voice that you don't hear in the Abhidharma, you don't hear in that early scholarly school. You suddenly have someone saying, actually it's about this. Someone making a truth claim of the same order as that of the Buddha himself. The difference being that Nagarjuna is seeking to recover quite explicitly what he feels the true import of the Buddha's teachings were. And of course for the Tibetans and for other Mahayanists, Nagarjuna is sometimes talked of as the second Buddha, as someone who came along at this point in time and brought the whole thing alive again. So Nagarjuna in a way is trying to break the Dharma, the teaching, out of the straitjacket in which he felt it had become imprisoned. Now, what's curious here is that he refers back to the early texts. He does not, as it were, explicitly advance another set of teachings, which might later be called Mahayana. He's a figure who stands between the early doctrines and the later philosophies. He's not a full-blown philosopher Buddhist philosopher nor is he simply repeating and reiterating what has been already said but he's articulating his understanding in what seems to me to be a poetic and experientially based language one that as it were seeks to give voice to the experience of emptiness rather than to try to define it, narrow it down, pin it down in some way. And of course, paradoxically, what happened subsequently was Madhyamaka philosophers who saw Nagarjuna as their founder went and did kind of the same thing as the abhidharmas They developed very systematic, logically precise, rigorous, intellectual arguments to support and to prove the idea of emptiness. Nagarjuna doesn't really do that. He gives some hints in that direction, but his language is curiously quixotic, playful, um, unwilling to ever really settle on any particular point. There's nothing that Nagarjuna is not prepared to deconstruct, including emptiness itself. But emptiness, there's one verse in which he says, empty, not empty, what's the difference? He's not willing to privilege any given term, any given experience over others. He's endlessly resistant to that very understandable human desire for a kind of doctrine, dogma, a set of certainties that are internally consistent and that make good, clear, rational sense. Nagarjuna seems to want to undermine that and yet, of course, the way he does or the way he he pursues that task is, of course, through language. He cannot step out of the very system of ideas, of thoughts, of terms, of sentences, of phrases that are liable to give rise to the very problem that he's seeking to resolve. It's a kind of a catch-22, in a way. And my own reading of this text is that you have someone here almost engaged in a perpetual dance, a perpetual kind of evasion strategy to not get trapped in the very materials, the very words, the very ideas that he cannot help but use. In the whole of the, the verses um, of Nagarjuna, he only mentions one other buddhist text and that's the kachayana gota sutta the 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 discourse to kachayana in sanskrit or kachayana in pali and this this is part of uh, the early buddhist canon i think it's in the Sangyutta nikaya and i feel it's worth having a quick look at that text to get a clue perhaps as to why it is that Nagarjuna singles out that particular discourse of the Buddha with with such special emphasis. And I'll just read you out a passage, it's quoted here on page 11. This is the Buddha speaking, but the Buddha says, Kachayana, everyday experience relies on the duality of it is, and it is not. But for one who perceives how the things of the world arise and pass away, for him there is no it is, and no it is not. Everything exists is simply one extreme, and nothing exists is the other extreme. The Tathagata, in other words the Buddha, relies on neither of these two extremes. He teaches The Dharma as a middle way. Now, here I think we get a quite a quite clear uh, suggestion as to where Nagarjuna's understanding of emptiness comes in. Emptiness is not for him either the affirmation of something existent, emptiness exists, nor is it the denial. Of everything else that exists, or, or emptiness is the denial of the emptiness, is the elimination of all things, the negation of all things. It's neither an affirmation nor is it a blanket denial, but somehow emptiness describes this, this, this path, this course between it is and it is not. And this is the middle way. Remember in the Buddha's very first sutta, um, the very first discourse to the five ascetics in the park in Sanat, he, he, the first thing he announces is he says, I found a middle way. And, and there it's a middle way between self-mortification and sensory indulgence. But the notion of middle way is one that is a kind of a current that runs through the entire tradition that's continuously being reconsidered, and here quite explicitly the middle way is the, the middle way between the extremes of affirmation and negation, between is and it is not, between being and non-being, in other words between these primary categories of language is and is not, a and not a. So emptiness therefore And again, there's a passage in Nagarjuna's own work in chapter 24 where he says emptiness is the middle way. Emptiness is precisely this way of being in the world, this way of living one's life in which one avoids slipping into either extreme, either into a kind of affirmation of one's existence or the existence of some god or some some doctrine or whatever and on the other hand an endlessly kind of negating denying nihilistic kind of approach in which one is just endlessly skeptical and suspicious this strategy of emptiness and I think it's probably most helpful to think of it as a strategy rather than as a doctrine or as a philosophy it's a liberative technique a liberative strategy to find one's way through experience in such a way that you don't get stuck and nagarjuna compares emptiness to a path we'll come back to this later in a couple of days as to as to what that might be getting at but another passage although nagarjuna does not refer to it that we find in the early canon is this uh, well-known encounter between the buddha and the wanderer vachagota and i'll just read out this um, again it's quoted in the book vachagota come he's not a buddhist he's just curious as to what the buddha is teaching and he comes up to the buddha and says how is it venerable gotama does the self exist the buddha remains silent then how is it venerable gotama does the self not exist the buddha again remains silent So then the wanderer of Achagota got up from his seat and went away. He wasn't getting much success out of this. And then the Buddha turned to his attendant Ananda and said to him, If I'd answered the self exists, that would have encouraged eternalism. If I'd answered the self does not exist, that would have encouraged nihilism. In other words, he was caught on the horns in some way of his own dilemma. Because, as we know, the Buddha had spent, one of the key terms we find in the, the early canon is, of course, the idea of anatta, of non-self. And yet here we have a very clear passage, as we do in the Kachayana the one the other passage I just read, of a perspective that's not actually willing to settle for either. Either self or non-self, is or is not. And the idea of emptiness is this attempt to steer a middle course between these two alternatives. To, to, to be able to use both terms, self and not self, is and is not, in a perfectly intelligible and communicative way. But to resist the temptation to set them up as some kind of absolute, some kind of, givens that exist in and of themselves. So although it might be very useful, and certainly Buddhist history would bear this out, that to combat our obsessive attachment to the notion of self, then to begin to attend to one's experience in terms of how it is not self. But if you then get stuck in not self, or if you then get stuck in emptiness, you've just, in a sense, recreated the same problem. You've now become stuck in in, in the opposite. And you now go around saying, there is no self, I'm a Buddhist, I believe in no self. You've now made no self into your obsession, into your fixation, into your attachment. So every term has its time and has its place and can be utilized in a in dealing with individual people at particular times, in an appropriate way. But with always with the necessary risk that that liberative strategy, that course of medicine can actually turn back on you like that snake and become a poison, can become a kind of bondage. Nagarjuna even goes so far in 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 his verses of saying that even impermanence can actually, if you get attached to the idea of impermanence, that is again another extreme, another way of slipping into a kind of nihilistic position. Everything fades away, everything everything dies, everything is over with, nothing lasts. Again, a somewhat familiar Buddhist refrain that that too becomes an obsession, that that too becomes another extreme. So permanent and impermanent, he critiques in the same way. But enough of all of this sort of theory. I'd like to read out some of these uh, poems, Um, or let's say these these texts that I have rendered as poems. (laughs) And what I've tried to do in this translation is to be is to be faithful to the text, but not exclusively, literally faithful, but to try to catch the kind of the rhythm or the uh, the uh, the dynamic of emptiness. I've tried for the poems to somehow capture, these endless shifts and moves in Nagarjuna's language, this shifting from is to is not, neither is, or is not, and neither and both, all that kind of stuff. I don't see these as, as it were, strict, rigorous, logical moves, but actually more as a kind of linguistic game. A linguistic game that is endlessly hopping around, trying to avoid the trap of being caught in either one extreme or another. And when I read these texts, and I'm afraid my limitation in language means I haven't consulted the Sanskrit, I've worked from the Tibetan, but the more I read those verses in the Tibetan, the more and more I felt that this was actually an almost Derridian-type deconstructive play rather than a proto-philosophical attempt to create a system, which is how traditional Buddhism understands Nagarjuna's work. This is the passage, or this is the poem called Seeing. If my eyes cannot see themselves, how can they see something else? Were there no trace of something seen, how could I see at all? Neither seeing nor unseeing see. Seeing reveals a seer who is neither detached nor undetached from seeing. How could you see and what would you see in the absence of a seer? Just as a child is born from father and mother, so consciousness springs from eyes and colourful shapes. Without these eyes, how could I know consciousness, impact, feeling and thirst? clinging, evolving, birth, ageing, and death. Seers seeing sights explain hearers hearing sounds, smellers smelling smells, tasters tasting tastes, touchers touching textures, thinkers thinking thoughts. Now some of this is reminiscent of what we were looking at this morning. The idea, for example, that consciousness springs from eyes and colorful shapes, just as a child is born from father and mother. That consciousness is a contingently emergent property, in a way, of the world itself. That when an organism comes, or a living organism, comes into contact, comes into impact with the world, that encounter generates consciousness. The consciousness is not, as it were, something hidden away inside us, waiting to come out, something tucked away at some mystical corner of our psyche, but is actually the consequence of our being in a world. Nagarjuna is also um, reluctant to eliminate the seer from this equation. For him, it seems as though this goes against linguistic convention, linguistic necessity. He says that seeing reveals a seer, and other words, a person who sees, who is neither detached nor undetached from seeing. How could you see and what would you see in the absence of a seer? So again, we often have the idea that in meditation it's just the seeing, it's just the hearing. But there's always some kind of participating person, a self who sees and hears and smells and tastes and touch. If you take the I or the he or the she out of the equation, you're left with really just a kind of um, abstract set of psychological, epistemological relationships, but no actual personality, no actual sense of this belonging in any way to a person, this being, a personalized experience, this being within the framework of a suffering individual. But for Nagarjuna, the for the, 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 the these three components of any <coughs> conscious act, namely the seer, the seeing, and the seen, or what we have seers, seeing sights, hearers, hearing sounds, that these three elements of experience are. Interdependent. You cannot have one without the other. Um, in later Buddhist philosophy, this becomes elevated to what's called the doctrine of the, the emptiness of the three cycles, it's called. In other words, the you know when, when when we hear something like that plane overhead now, we automatically parse it into sound out there. A hearing that's going on somewhere in the intermediate zone between the sound and me, and then a hearer, a subject, myself, who is the person hearing the sound. And very, very naturally, very instinctively, we split reality into those three compartments, which is again an, a kind of uh, prototype abhidharmic type approach. The, as soon as we try to explain or describe what's happening, this is what language. These are the tools that language gives us. It requires this splitting, this breaking down, this compartmentalizing, this differentiating, which is necessary but treacherous. So to experience the the emptiness of that moment is not to find some quality called emptiness that somehow mystically pervades or infuses that experience, but rather to recognize that there is no line, there are no lines segregating those facets of our experience, that we are encountering, we're experiencing a seamless, unbroken and ineffable whole. And again, one can do this in one's own um, meditation practice. One can test this out. A very simple way to do this is just to sit in meditation and when the mind gets somewhat still, when you hear a sound, for example, ask yourself, where does the sound stop and the hearing of it begin? That When you're hearing the aeroplane, you can quite legitimately say there's the sound of the aeroplane in the sky, And you can also say, I am hearing the sound of the aeroplane. And it seems instinctively true that there are these two or three different things going on. The subject, the object, and this hearing or seeing or smelling or tasting and touching. And yet, just attend to that experientially, and you'll find that there is this curious, unbroken um, well we do, in some phenomenological texts in Western philosophy they would say um, hearing hyphen the hyphen sound hyphen of hyphen the hyphen aeroplane to suggest the, the continuity, the seamlessness, the unbrokenness of that moment. And Nagarjuna seems to be suggesting that the experience of emptiness is an experience in which that habit is, is at least for the, for the moment, broken. That, ga- that that splitting, that parsing, doesn't occur. But yet, at the same time, we'll come out of that meditation and say, I was listening to an airplane. And there's no problem with that. This is the poem that I've translated as Contingency. And in fact, what it is, it's one of the few um, chapters, one of the few, ver- one of the few sections of the book, in which Nagarjuna takes a very classic Buddhist doctrine and, as it were, gives his spin on it. Um, in that sense, it's slightly uncharacteristic. And to be honest, I have certain doubts as to whether this passage is as early as some of the others. But I think it, it, it very, very well captures what we were talking about this morning. This is really a reflection on the Twelve Links. It's on page 131. Contingency. Blocked by confusion, I forge a destiny through impulsive acts. Consciously, I enter situations where personality unfolds and world impacts on a sensitive soul. Personality creates consciousness just as attention, the eye and a colorful shape trigger vision. Impact is the meeting of consciousness, senses and world. It leads to experience I crave to have and avoid. Craving makes me cling at senses, opinions, rules and selves. Clinging is to insist on being someone. Not to cling is to be free, to be no one. To be someone is to be a conscious, impulsive, thinking, feeling body which is born, ages, dies, suffers torment, grief, Pain, depression, and anxiety. Anguish emerges when someone is born. Impulsive acts are the root of life. Fools are impulsive. The wise see things as they are. When confusion stops through insight, impulsive acts cease. Stop this, and that will not happen anguish will end. The word I've translated here as personality is actually nama-rupa. So nama-rupa creates consciousness just as attention, the eye, and a colourful shape trigger vision. So again you see we have Nagarjuna taking these terms and always locating them within a context of of conditions and circumstances that generate them and once those circumstances have changed into something else, that phenomena vanishes. So consciousness is continuously coming into being and passing away, coming into being and passing away. We're shifting from what we see, to hear, to smell, to taste, to touch, but there's no kind of permanent consciousness that is as it were a constant. That's how it appears of course. It seems that way. And yet if we look very closely and carefully with concentration, with inquiry into the unfolding of this experience, that assumption of constancy, of fixity, begins to collapse. And it's in that breakdown, that loss of fixation, that loss of consciousness, for example, being a thing, set apart from other things, when that hold begins to be released, then we get a a sense of its emptiness, that it's not actually necessary, it doesn't have to be. It's there for a moment, it's gone the next. It will then generate another moment, and that another, and that another, and that another. Another. But it's like a continual stream of rapid moments, rather than a kind of fixed state. And I'll conclude by reading um, one of the one of the key chapters, I think, in many ways, and that's chapter that's um, the poem I've translated as "Self," which is on page one one four. And I'm going to come back to this tomorrow actually. In fact, much of tomorrow's morning's talk will be on ideas from here. Self, I would come and go like them. If I were something else, they would say nothing about me. What is mine when there is no me? Were self-centeredness eased, I would not think of me and mine. There would be no one there to think them. What is inside is me, what is outside is mine. When these thoughts end, compulsion stops, repetition ceases, freedom dawns. Fixations spawn thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops fixations. Buddhas speak of self and also teach no self and also say there's nothing which is either self or not. When things dissolve, there's nothing left to say. The unborn and unceasing are already free. Buddha said, it is real, and it is unreal, and it is both real and unreal, and it is neither one nor the other. It is all at ease, unfixatable by fixations, incommunicable, inconceivable, Indivisible. You are not the same as nor different from conditions on which you depend. You are neither severed from nor forever fused with them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhas who care for the world. When Buddhas don't appear and their followers are gone, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. I'm going to end here, so I'm not going to go into any of this now, but I will tomorrow. The first verse here, where mind and matter, me, I would come and go like them. If I were something else, they would say nothing about me. That's the verse that precipitated Tsongkhapa's enlightenment in 1490-something. Mind and matter is the way I've translated the skandhas, and me is the way I've translated self. And I'd like to leave you with that. Um, and again, I'm not concerned to try to pick all these things apart, to um, explain what every verse means. I don't think that's, I think that runs the risk of actually getting bogged down in precisely what Nagarjuna is trying to free himself on. And that is this kind of attempt to fix things, to get a definite sense or meaning that's unambiguous and final. In other words, a dogma. If there are any questions around what I've said this evening, we can deal with those in the discussion period tomorrow morning. But I'd suggest now that we have a period of walking, reflection, if we wish, maybe get some fresh air, try to return to the spirit of attention, of awareness, of noticing, of paying attention again to what we've covered today, the different facets of experience, but again without literalizing them into things. You know, The contact is one thing, feeling another. That these are ways of talking about something that ultimately cannot be dissected. That they all are part of a single whole. And we'll meet back here at half past eight for the concluding meditation of the day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.